Just a warning is that sometimes you'll hear of a tax strategy and you'll get the high level idea and then someone will go out and just implement it or try to implement it. And like David said, if you don't read the actual code and read the actual book on it, then you might do things out of order and that could mess up and the whole thing goes out the door. If you do a self-directed IRA and think you can buy an Airbnb and use it yourself, you can't use and personally benefit from or invest in your own deal through your IRA and that could blow up your coverage maybe on your whole self-directed IRA. So you need to do things carefully. If you're a syndicator, don't overpromise things or sell it. Don't sell something based on the tax advantage. It needs to be a genuinely good investment and you shouldn't be selling essentially what are, you know, a tax scheme to dodge taxes. It should just be a deal which you've then made tax efficient. So it's an even better deal than it was before. Um, otherwise in tax court, they might show something blown up, which is one sentence from a long email you wrote that makes it look like you're a marketer of tax shelters, which is a huge no-no in the eyes of the IRS and the government. So you want to stay uh, far away from that if you are raising capital, but be knowledgeable. So you could refer people to uh, Keith's platform or John Bowen's at Equity Trust and unlock when they say, oh no, I'm sorry, I'm not really liquid right now. Then you could say, oh, well, do you really like where the stock market is at right now after the you know, the run it's had uh, over time up until a year and a half ago. And they might want to, they might believe as an entrepreneur more in direct investments. And that's where they can leverage an equity trust to unlock that capital, which could then go into your deal, which could be found capital. Um, I mentioned this before, every deal can be made more tax efficient or come from a tax efficient uh, location. And the people who care about tax efficiency are the ones who are earning seven figures a year or earning five, six hundred thousand a year as an entrepreneur and someone who worked for 10, 20 years to build their business, writing $350,000 tax checks and 100K a quarter to the IRS doesn't really feel too good sometimes. So um, they want to get smarter and their CPA typically will not help them. Lots of times people want to keep their traditional CPA, but then be part of a group like Keith's, work with a self-directed IRA platform, maybe hire a proactive tax consultant or a niche consultant like David and then keep their CPA that's worked for them for 15 years perhaps, but bring to them these creative ideas. And they might know how to document it, but they're usually not gonna help you come up with those creative strategies. And they don't know the hundred strategies, um, the hundreds of strategies that are out there really. Um, and all else equal, why would you not invest with someone who's hyper-specialized in a geography versus another one who's competing for attention who's not? Or why would you not invest in something that's more tax efficient versus not, uh, no matter what the type of deal? Tax diligence is something that investors here in the room should be familiar with. Who do you trust to do tax diligence? If somebody says something has a certain tax treatment, who are the experts that you rely upon? And you're going to really bank, you know, are they going to stand up for you when they go through an IRS audit? Do you know of someone who's gone through an audit, came out the other side, and still employed that CPA after an audit? Um, that's a good test of whether it's a good CPA. We interviewed Thomas Handler, who's a trust and estate attorney. I've known him for 17 years out of Chicago. Um, he works with hundreds of hundred million plus net worth families and our tax expert interview with him was really about the CPA privilege versus tax attorney privilege. Tax attorneys are at a higher level of attorney client privilege than CPAs. Under relatively light poking, CPAs have to unveil everything that's been said to them to the IRS or other lawyers or the government where there's attorney client privilege where as long as you've engaged that attorney as your client then things are privileged and they can't, you know, those discussions you had are not findable or discoverable in most cases unless there's just complete outright fraud or some breakage of that coverage. And that's just important to know. So with each strategy, you just need to think, you know, is this for me? Does this relate to the investments I'm doing? 
Um, for example, R&D tax credits can be something that is really underutilized. And if you run an American U.S. soil based software development company, R&D company, industrial company, or you're investing in one, then you can get rebates multiple years back that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars for that software programming or industrial R&D type work or manufacturing work. And a lot of this is um, if you help an investor, it might have nothing to do with what you're working on with that investor friend. If you help them find hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollar tax fine, they're going to say, hey, can I throw half of this or all of it or 20% of it at something you're doing? Or like, how can I help you? You just save me $200,000 a year for the next decade of my life. Or you just save me $100,000. You know, what could we do together? How could I repay you? Or who could I refer to you? So it's a quick way to make friends if you can just sit down next to someone in first class and after chatting with them casually five, 10 minutes, be like, oh, you're in that industry. Have you looked into this? Or have you thought about buying tax credits? Or do you do cost segregation? Or do you use 401k, you know, solo 401ks? And, you know, the more you have that arsenal, then the more you can build your mental models to how you add value to other people in the world, whether you're an investor um, and you're adding value to a company that didn't know about R&D tax credits. So now they're going to allow you to invest at a valuation, which is ridiculously low compared to what everyone else gets to invest at. Or when you're raising capital, you make friends with investors by saving them tons of money. Um, depreciation or bonus depreciation is the, uh, and it, it's going down the bonus depreciation allowance, but you can still depreciate things up to the value of it that year. You just can't go backwards with the bonus depreciation um, as much now. I think it's 80% this year, 60% next. But this would be if somebody's investing in something, and let's say it's a piece of equipment, and you could write off the full equipment then on your K-1 as an investor, you may be able to show a loss. You have to match that up if you're passive with a passive gain for passive loss or active versus active. And you should do more research if you're not familiar with in the eyes of the IRS, if you're designated as a real estate professional, that allows more fluid treatment of active versus passive losses. And one of our tax expert interviews was with uh, Tom Wheelwright, uh, who's a pretty famous author and tax strategist. And he talks about how to convert your passive income to active and convert your active to passive. And he's got sophisticated strategies on how to do that. And you can look that up in our, our portal as well. In the example where you're layering strategy, it's just important to keep in mind that let's say you're buying something for 100,000, like $1 million for easy math, and you could appreciate for a million dollars. If you want to magnify the impact, you could go to investors who don't care at all about the depreciation, raise $900,000 in debt on that and pay them a fair return on the debt. And for $100,000, get all the equity on that asset and depreciate the million dollars and you only put in $100,000, um, et cetera. There, you, know, you have to look at what your CPA is comfortable with on leverage related to that and share classes and look at uh, depreciation recapture at the exit. So how long you're going to hold the asset, what value it's going to have at the exit are all things to look into. Uh, real quick, a couple other quick ones just to be aware of is 529 plans. Very few tax structures allow you to put money into a tax-protected structure, but then later on and have it be protected uh, from lawsuits, litigation, uh, divorce, etc., but then later pull it back into your estate. And, and usually you're penalized massively for doing such things. In this case, um, if I remember correctly, you're only penalized on the gains that happened while it was in the tax-protected structure and not on the full amount. Sometimes with other structures, it's the full amount. And we interviewed a 529 expert where all he does is help families put tens of millions of dollars into 529 plans who are family offices or hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars. 
into 529 plans, most people are just familiar with like, oh, in the state of Texas, you can put $4,000 a year in a 529 plan and put it towards a kid's college retirement. Or in Arizona, it's $3,000 a year or whatever it may be. And it's basically, you don't get taxed on that $3,000 to go towards your kid's college education one day. If they don't use it, you can shift it, have it be used for another kid. If they don't use it, you could use it for your own education um, or pull it out for other uses and pay a penalty on that gain. Most people don't know that you can use the 529 part of the tax code to protect large amounts of money from litigation, lawsuits, you know, divorces, other things. So just a weird niche area to be aware of. Uh, only one or two more, and we'll, we'll get to a small group exercise here. Qualified small business stock is one that I have not used myself yet. But uh, when you're make, if you make investments into small or medium-sized operating businesses and they qualify under this tax code area, um, then all of your gains on that investment could be tax-free. And um, so if you're routinely investing into small to medium-sized companies, you have to know this part of the tax code. If you're only going to do it once in your life or twice in your life, it still could be worth it if the company becomes worth a lot of money. Um, but very few people I know actually take advantage of this, myself included. I have not. Um, it's something that people hear about and just for whatever reason don't take a lot of action on, even though they could be because everyone's so busy you know, running their business, growing their platform, et cetera. This stuff takes time, as you can see. You can see how complex this gets, trying to fit tax strategies into a half day. There could be a week-long workshop on this, and we wouldn't cover all the 100 areas we could, right? Uh, I think we, we flogged the self-directed IRA topic quite enough for today. So talk to John if you want to talk longer on that. Um, cost segregation, historical tax credits. David spoke about that. Cost segregation is basically looking at a real estate property can't depreciate the land. Uh, so you look at the land value, which you can't depreciate faster, and you look at the value of the, pli the pipes and the wires and the building structure. So you'll typically be able to accelerate the depreciation most on something that has low land value, high structure value, and you'll get less of a percentage of depreciation, which means it's a little bit less tax efficient short term when the land value is massive and you have very little structure or no structure on it. Um, so there's something to keep in mind with that. Most people here are very familiar with 1031s, probably one of the most common, well-known uh, tax strategies of selling an asset, rolling it into another one. Some people miss that if you are married, I believe the exception is you have to live there three of the last five years, or is your primary home two of the last five years? Is that right? Two of the last five? And then uh, up to $500,000, I think, is tax exempt on that sale of that primary residence that was a primary residence for two out of five. Um, so that's something just to keep in mind if you're flipping out of an asset uh, in today's market. Um, health savings account we talked about, qualified opportunity zones. Um, lots of times when you sell a business, you owe the capital gains. Capital gains can be, you can protect yourself from taxation on them if you're okay locking up your capital for a decade with somebody who would put the money to work into oil and gas or a business or in real estate. 95% of all QOZ deals, Qualified Opportunity Zone deals I see are in real estate. Then I see some oil and gas. I see almost no deals in operating businesses. I've seen one deal, two deals out of thousands of deals we see per year um, in operating businesses, leveraging QOZs. Uh, we know some billion dollar plus providers in these areas if anyone needs that. One thing to consider is if you sell your company for, one of my friends just sold his company for $28 million and you know, if you do that, you might say, okay, well, I don't want to lock up all my capital for a decade. I need access to some of it. I want to improve my lifestyle and do this and that and the other. But also, I don't want to trust, let's say you want to put 10 million of 28 million and protect that amount, just get taxed on that 18 million. Even with that 10 million, you'd probably want to spread it out with at least three or four different very credible 
vetted, reference checked, very well established groups because there's a thousand players in the QOZ niche. And you want to, just like any other investment you do, especially when you're going to be locked up for a decade, be with someone that really has it documented correctly so that doesn't get blown up and that you like their track record and strategies. We talked about the real estate designation. We talked about Tom Wheelwright's video. I encourage you to check that one out, especially if you know a lot about tax strategies. This would be something that's probably new uh, to you on how to convert active to passive, passive to active income. Um, so hopefully there's something for everyone there in the tax expert interview series um, that's, that's helpful. We don't have time to go super deep on that today, just kind of to shine a light on it a little bit. Um, so anytime that you are trying to develop your deal flow, whether it's quality of deal flow, effectiveness, efficiency of deals, like being tax efficient, we encourage you to be in two to four different communities uh, to position yourself to attract better deals within the niche where you want to invest the most, like us in medical practices and short-term rentals. Um, to be proactive, like create a data set of like, hey, here's the 30 dry cleaners in San Diego and the three zip codes we like. Create that data set and create relationships with those 30 to 300 asset owners. Acquire choke points like dentalclub.com, billionaires.com, things that once you acquire it, you attract deal flow, you position yourself for deal flow strategically in a way where you can't be displaced too easily. And then operate within the business if you can, instead of just being fully passive, if you want to be a really great investor, be active in some part of it so that you have frontline information on what's going on in the industry. And, you know, there's a question, a uh, famous question related like martial arts again is, you know, how long does it take for the average person to become a black belt or to learn all about tax stru structures, right? How do you become a black belt in structuring deals? Well, the average person never becomes a black belt. The average person never even becomes a white belt, right? So your competitors probably don't know a lot of the things we talked about today. And I'm always learning more. You guys are always learning more. Some of you know way more than I do about tax structures or structuring deals, and that's fine. Uh, we want our best investors here in this room at our investor club summits. Um, and in that way, we're aligned because we're not doing what you're doing. So we're always learning and we see Family Office Club is a perpetual learning machine where you get to pick up mental models from ultra-wealthy families, from niche tax experts, from sponsors and syndicators, etc. So here are seven different uh, structure and tax strategy insights. You want to maximize alignment, have handsome rewards for great results, make sure your structure is sweating for you. Um, you could have a brand name for your investment company called Wilson Capital. That could be the name of your family office or your, your real estate company or, or, or private company. But no one has any idea what you do. No one's ever going to send you a deal first or remember, oh yeah, that, that's that company who does X and Y. Even if your name is a mouthful, it'd be better off being called Strategic San Diego Dry Cleaner Partners than Wilson Capital, right? Um, and the same thing is with your tax structures and your investment structures. They're either sweating for you or they're sitting there on a shelf doing nothing for you. So each part of the totem pole, the stacking of the exponential progress you're trying to make should be sweating for you and working for you. Superior structures, superior tax strategies, superior people on your team, superior business model, and that's how things grow very quickly. Um, become a student of this, and I think there'll be a lot of rewards that, that we've found. Um, so I hope you find the same thing, and don't follow the herd offering average things like everybody else in the space, and constantly improve the offering.